Hi everyone, it's Bill here. In our last episode, we heard about some of the pros and cons of traditional peer review compared to alternative models like Cascade Peer Review, and how editors, societies, and publishers can help make the process of peer review the best it can possibly be. One that helps authors do their greatest work and guides them to publish that work in the most appropriate way. But what about research that gets through peer review and is published, but is later found to have fundamental flaws? From high-profile retractions to review studies that uncover serious problems in methodology and reporting, we certainly see plenty of examples where peer review as a system seems to simply fail. The integrity of research, being able to trust the articles published in a peer review journal, is part of the bedrock of research communication. Peer review is far from a perfect system. But does it really lag as much bad research through as some might argue? This week, we're bringing in another perspective on peer review, this time from Wiley's newly appointed Director of Research Integrity and Ethics, Chris Graff. We called Chris to ask what he thinks of the whole peer review is broken idea. Hello, Chris Graff here. Hey, Chris. Bill DeLuise. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Is now still a good time? Yeah, perfect. All right, great. Thank you again so much for joining us today. You're welcome. So, Chris, you are Wiley's Director of Research Integrity and Publishing Ethics. Tell me, tell me why that job needs to exist. Why is it the case that fraud and misconduct is still an issue in research publishing? I think I'd start by emphasizing that peer review is at the center of everything that we do. And when I say we, I mean we, Wiley, uh, we, the editors and the journals that we publish, and we, the research communities that we work with to publish that work. So it's the biggest possible we. Now, publishing is changing very fast. Research publishing is not immune to that. Research publishing is changing fast as well. And I believe that the world of research is changing fast too. So looking after the core thing that we do, that is peer review, is fundamental to ensuring that we still have a robust mechanism to, I don't know, to look at what is submitted to journals for publication, to evaluate whether that work has been conducted appropriately, to feed back to authors and to mentor them through the through the peer review process so that they can improve how their uh, research or their academic work is reported in their article, to publish that article, and then you know, most importantly from my point of view, to look after that article once it's been published, to correct it when it needs correcting, to retract it when it's found that that work is unreliable, either through um, honest error or mistake, or through, yes, misconduct, which yeah, does happen, but not as much as the headlines might imply. That's interesting. I Because, you know, you listen to some people and you get the sense that fraud and, and research misconduct is absolutely rampant. Is is that not the case? That is not the case. Um, headlines sell newspapers and so do exciting stories about, about inappropriate behavior. Um, and yes, it goes on. It really does go on. But the vast majority of what we publish is, um, is as reliable as it has ever been and is is not sort of um, rife with fraud and misconduct. Can you put some context around that, some numbers? What do, I mean, do you have a sense of the percentage of research that's being published that is um, 
out of step with standards of research integrity. Only today at the European Society of Anesthesiology meeting, um, a study was announced and then published simultaneously of a rather computational analysis on about 5,000 anesthesia studies in, a, in eight journals. And the study found that two in, about two in 100 articles um, looks like it needs further attention because the numbers don't seem to add up. The papers don't point a finger and say this, this is all fabricated or somehow fraudulent, um, but they, they do indicate that about two in 100 papers are, um, need to be looked at again. So 2%, 2% that is questionable. Yeah, that's right. Um, this, I note, is in anesthesiology. I don't know whether that is um, uh, sort of generalizable outside of the medical sciences, let alone outside of anesthesiology. But, you know, if you wanted a line in the sand, why not assume that about 2% is needs further attention? And when that further attention is warranted because misconduct has taken place or because fraud is an issue... What are the things that are driving that behavior in the research community? A lot of people point the finger at incentives, the perhaps perverse incentives that are, that are at play in the research world. And I, I've read research that supports that, and I've read research including an article by Daniele Finelli in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science only a couple of months ago that suggests that it's not really pressure to publish that's the cause. Instead, it suggests that perhaps poor research collaborations, perhaps the absence of mentorship, perhaps distant research collaborations, which are you know pretty common um, in the world's best research, and perhaps you know he does talk interestingly about about the misconduct thing. So you know, perhaps there are people who just cheat, <laughs> and it's got not so much to do with the incentives or the systems that they work in. It's just these people are um, breaking the rules. You started off by saying that, um, by reminding us all that peer review is at the center of everything we do. Is peer review the best weapon we have to combat against research that lacks integrity? Peer review is, and the processes that surround it, are what we do in journal publishing to, the best we can, choose what is appropriate for publication. It relies on human beings to make that assessment just like research itself relies on human beings to conduct the research. And it is a, you know, a stressed system, just like every other system. So it is, it is what we've got. Um, I, I think I also said at the start of the um, conversation, Bill, that the role of the editor is sort of gatekeeper on what gets published, but could be um, thought of as a role being a mentor for the authors the research authors, to help them with the peer review reports to improve the, the quality of the work that they publish. I think that what I would like to do, Wiley, is to encourage us to invest in people um, and the tools that help peer reviewers and editors to do that job of mentoring better. Perhaps like, um, you remember when um, Authenticate became a thing, that we used in journal workflows and um, you know, pretty much any article could be analyzed by machines for, for potential plagiarism. And now that's a, a tool that is used routinely across many journals. 
Are there others, though? Are there other technological advances that we should expect um, to be introduced into the peer review process that will help uh, strengthen the process and the quality of research? Yeah, there's some really interesting work going on here. Um, the anesthesiology study that I referred to earlier in this conversation um, uses a tool that a anesthetist called John Carlyle invented. And that tool could be used, could be used in the editorial work, office workflow to look at randomized controlled trials, for example. There are other things that are equally interesting. For example, um, a, a gentleman called Enrico Bucci has a company called Rhesus. And they have some clever technology that looks at images. And what it looks for is areas within those images that have been, you know, have been photoshopped, have been copied and pasted, or have been deleted. And that's important when images in articles report data. There's also work going on around reporting guidelines. There are a large number of uh, reporting guidelines housed under the umbrella organization called Equator, or the Equator Network, and including uh, famous re reporting guidelines like the consort checklist and statement and so on. And there's a tool called PNLP, um, Penelope, uh, Penelope Research, that is a neuro-linguistic device that looks at the text that the authors have included in journal articles and works out whether or not the things that the consort reporting guidelines suggest should be there, whether or not those items actually are there in the manuscript. And that helps to feed back to authors whether they missed out an important piece of information that should be included in their manuscript. And then there are other tools that look at, well, for example, statistical reporting. There's a tool called Stat Reviewer, um, which I'm not sure quite how it works yet, but we'll find out in a couple of weeks when uh, the guys from Stat Reviewer come visit us at Wiley and uh, give, give us a guided tour. It's amazing. It sounds, it, it, it sounds like the range of things being attempted or, or trialed or experimented with is so much greater than I had uh, than I had appreciated. And I think that's a reflection of something that I keep coming back to. Um, now, we think of research as one thing. We think of academia as being one thing or one community, right? But it's not. There are probably thousands of different... Um, verticals or segments to that community, working in lots of different ways. And um, to imagine that uh, automating the scrutiny that editorial offices give to all research in a simple and easy way, to imagine that that might be possible is probably not being realistic. Um, what I think is the right approach is to find the areas that different research of streams share and focus on those and just simply to recognize that what works in physics doesn't work in history and doesn't work in the life and biomedical sciences so you really need to think thinking you know think hard about the those different communities how they work and what's appropriate for them chris craft thank you so much for taking the time it's been really a pleasure you're most welcome thank you very much indeed so that's it for this episode there is so much more to talk about when it comes to peer review, and Chris had a lot more to say, so we'll continue the conversation in future episodes. You can find links to the things we talked about in the show notes. 
Our theme music was provided by Jason Shaw and editing by Dennis Velasca. The show's producer is Anna Ayler. Our editorial advisory group includes Alexa Dugan, David Nicholson, Sarah Phibbs, Mark Robertson, and Nielsen Turner. You can find previous episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing to the Wiley Society podcast in iTunes. You can also sign up for our mailing list to learn more about what's happening at Wiley and other news and trends in research publishing by going to exchanges.wiley.com societies. Until next time, I'm Bill Eloise for the Wiley Society podcast. Thanks for listening.